Hi, and good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. I see people are trickling in uh, for a discussion today about the role of uh, female political participation in Kuwait, which I think is quite timely given the election in December and then given the appointment of the new cabinet uh, just quite recently. So thanks so much for joining us again. I'm Courtney Freer. I'm Assistant Provisorial Research Fellow at LSE's Middle East Center. And we have with us Zainab Kaya and Lubna Al-Khazi. I'm very excited to, to hear them speak. Um, Zainab will speak for about uh, 15 to 20 minutes about a research project that she conducted in Kuwait uh, through uh, funding from the Kuwait program here at LSE. Uh, and then Dr. Lubna will follow and be a respondent with about 10 minutes uh, of comments and then we'll open up to Q&A. Um, and if you'd like to ask a question, um, go ahead and type your question into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen and then we'll address it, try to get to as many as possible um, after. The event is being recorded uh, in case you want to listen to it again. Um, it will also be live streamed on Facebook. And if you want to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag LSE Kuwait or LSE Middle East. Um, so since we only have an hour, I'll briefly uh, introduce the speakers and then we can get started. Um, so Zainab Kaya is a lecturer in international development in the Department of Social and Policy Studies at the University of Bath and a visiting fellow at the LSE Middle East Center. She was previously a senior teaching fellow at the Department of Development Studies at SOAS and an academic associate at Pembroke College at the University of Cambridge. Uh, Zainab is interested in understanding how communities and political groups perceive, interact with, and challenge international processes and dominant norms. Her research looks at the relationship between gender, violence, and development in conflict and post-conflict contexts. Um, she holds a PhD in international relations from the LSE. And uh, her book, Mapping Kurdistan, Territory, Self-Determination and Nationalism, was just published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Uh, Lubna Ahmed Al-Khazi um, was director of the Women's Research and Studies Center at Kuwait University between 2010 and 2020. Um, she's also a professor in the sociology department. Uh, Lubna graduated from the University of Texas with a PhD in demography and sociology and was a consultant with the population division at the United Nations for one year from 1986 to 87. And in 2009, a consultant for the UN Development Program, um, when she prepared the section on gender and development for the Kuwait five-year uh, Kuwait National Five-Year Plan for 2010 to 2015. Uh, Lubna is also on the editorial board of the Arabic journal Al Thakafa Lamia and the Journal of Arabian Studies. Uh, she's a member of the Women's Cultural and Social Society and the Sociologies Association in Kuwait, as well as a member of the advisory board of Vital Voices, a women's organization established by Hillary Clinton when she was first lady. Um, and her areas of interest are gender, population change, and family. Um, so both of them are far more qualified to talk about this topic than I am. So I will go ahead and let uh, Zainab get started. Thank you. Thank you, Courtney, for, for the introduction. I'm delighted to be here uh, talking about women's political participation in Kuwait. And I'm also delighted to uh, have uh, Dr. Lubna Al-Khazi to be uh, discussing today. I met her in Kuwait during the research and she has been immensely helpful um, in the process and I'm uh, looking forward to hearing her thoughts. I'll try to keep my talk as brief as possible. So this is basically a research project conducted in 2019. Um, and um, so the information I gathered uh, mainly through talking to um, political activists in Kuwait and women's rights activists is from that period, from that uh, particular context. Uh, so some of the information um, I don't have much update on in terms of how the thinking about women's political participation has changed uh, on the ground and how the new, whether there are any new challenges. Um, so the, um, I mainly focused on uh, women's suffrage in 2005 and how this impacted um, women's uh, participation in politics uh, in Kuwait and, and what are the challenges women are facing uh, in this process. And the reason I'm interested in, so I'm just to mention before, and I'm not an expert on Kuwait per se, I work on uh, women and gender in, in the Middle East. Uh, that's one of my um, areas of expert uh, research. I, and I mainly focus on Iraq. And Iraq, um, if anyone knows about the context, uh, introduced a quota for women's participation, uh, for, for women to take part and get um, uh, be represented in politics, in electoral politics and in um, councils. So there's a 25% quota, quota for women to take seats. And 
Uh, in Kuwait, on the other hand, there is no quota, uh, but also uh, women's participation uh, since 2005 has been, um, or women formal electoral participation, their ability to take seats in the parliament has not been easy. Uh, and there hadn't been, haven't been many women uh, taking seats in the parliament. For instance, in the 2006-2008 elections, no women were elected. Uh, in 2009, uh, four women joined the parliament, then three in 2012, two in 2013, and only one in 2016. And as we all know, um, in the 2020 elections, 29 candidates ran in elections, but none, none won a seat. So now today we have an all-male uh, parliament in, in Kuwait. So I'm interested in, I was basically what drew me to this research coming from a different context, uh, focusing on gender and, and women's, women's participation. Um, what are the factors that are play out in, in Kuwait uh, in this context? Uh, so I'm basically an outsider and these are basically, um, you know, so just wanted to mention, mention that. But it's a fascinating context. Um, so there are some similarities, obviously, um, with, the, with, the Iraq, with the Iraqi context, you know, two neighboring countries, they have a very um, complex relationship. Uh, that included war and 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 um, intervention. Uh, so culturally, there are quite a lot of similarities, but also significant differences. Um, and uh, in Iraq, when I talk to, for instance, uh, women parliamentarians or uh, political activists, um, the opinion about quota is divided. Uh, so is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? So we can discuss this later. You know whether it's a democratic process or not. Is it a the opinion is divided in that sense. So I saw the similar discussions going on in Kuwait in terms of quota. And I think in a way, the effort to include women in formal political politics without the need for a quota is, is very democratic. And, and it's much more grounded because many of the women in the parliament in Iraq are there, but not necessarily substantially representing particular political views. They work in line with the parties and in terms of contribution to women's political rights and general other rights, um, there hasn't been much change in that sense. So the quota is severely criticized in Iraq as well as supported. So, um, so in, an, in, a, in a different context, lack of quota and uh, a, a late introduction of women's suffrage, how does this impact um, women's ability to get elected and uh, how does it affect politics in Kuwait in, in general. Um, so one, one, one more thing to say is how do, how do I define political participation? So although here the focus is on electoral participation, uh, obviously I do not define uh, women's political participation only in terms of participation in formal politics, such as voting, running, in, uh, running for parliamentary elections, taking up governmental roles. Uh, but also other informal informal forms of participation that do not necessarily conform to the modalities of formal political participation. And indeed, uh, creative women throughout the history have been engaging in informal and informal forms of political participation throughout the history. So women in create from different walks of life make strategic and political choices every day. Uh, they set, they have set up a uh, women's rights organization, has been campaigning, working, carrying out Im immense work uh, throughout the history, joining political associations, pushing for rights, and they are actively engaging in politics, even though they may not take part formally in, in the parliament, for instance. And this is also a political participation. So, um, so saying that there are no women in the Kuwaitan parliament doesn't mean that women, Kuwait women are not politically participating. Uh, so that's important point to make, I think. Um, so the research was based on 27, um, 27 uh, semi-structured interviews in Kuwait conducted in the spring and summer of 2019. Uh, me and uh, the research assistant on the project, Nural Nazili, uh, who uh, is a great friend and also uh, has been amazing, uh, has done amazing work on this project. So um, the, we selected the interviews through snowballing technique and we talked to MPs, ministers, ex-current and candidates, uh, public officers, current, I mean current then in 2019, uh, election campaigners, academics, civil society representatives, 
uh, and all most of the great tea participants were women. Um, unfortunately, the insights from this research do not include certain important groups relevant to the research, uh, so such as representatives of Islamist women's organizations, uh, conservative female candidates, male politicians, representatives from districts dominated by tribes and the Bidun. Um, we couldn't reach these groups mainly because the research project was only three weeks for, for data collection. Um, and we just didn't have time to establish networks among these, these groups. So it's basically a limitation that was caused by us. So the insights do not necessarily represent all the all, all women or all of the situation in Kuwait. So just to um, mention that as well before I go on to uh, providing a summary of what uh, women said um, and men uh, and mostly women said about uh, women's challenges, the challenges women face in Kuwait in terms of um, political participation. So some of the themes that came up uh, that were quite prominent and I will talk briefly about them were uh, gender norms and inequalities was um, was an important factor they meant that, that was mentioned in relation to this double standards plus uh, sexism. Uh, and another issue was extensively discussed was the divanias and the role of divanias in politics in Kuwait and, and women uh, relative lack of access to, to these platforms. And then another factor that came up was the issue of network, um, which is connected to divanias and how uh, this is limiting women, but also how they are trying to overcome this. Um, another thing that came up, not necessarily a factor that limits women's participation, but something that's an important factor that was discussed was wasta and corruption. Uh, and, um, you know, what is women's role in the in these processes? And then I'll briefly also talk about uh, the impact of women's political participation on women's suffrage, as mentioned by, by the participants themselves. So when it comes to gender norms and inequalities, the creative constitution rules against discrimination on the basis of race, origin, uh, language or religion. However, in practice, gender discrimination in socioeconomic and political life has been systematic. Uh, and equal rights on paper have not necessarily transformed into equal opportunities, despite uh, women's rights activism uh, for decades in, in Kuwait. Obviously, there has been changes and um, uh, amendments in legal context, in policies and regulations over time as well. So I'm not saying, um, uh, as the interviewee said, um, there has been progress as well in a lot of progresses as well in these areas. In general, um, the uh, there is a a paternalistic legal system that's very much embedded in the um, institutional family in Kuwait. Uh, so the family rather than the individual is constitutionally defined as a key unit of society um, in the Kuwaiti system. And in this context, in the family, gender hierarchy is a key characteristic of uh, most Kuwaiti families. Uh, so the examples are legal guardianship system, the law, social practices that govern marriage, uh, divorce, housing, inheritance, uh, all these put men in a higher position than women in this gender hierarchy. And uh, the um, participants came up, mentioned very you know, important detailed, but really important uh, uh, factors, examples of these processes. For instance, uh, laws concerning uh, honor killing still exist in, in Kuwait, although, um, through abolish uh, 153, um, a new legislation had been introduced uh, for victims of domestic abuse, and this also seeks to cancel honor killing. So that's an important uh, progress. And other examples they mentioned were, uh, for, for instance, there's a large number of women working, but um, there are still many women with no access to their own bank accounts because husbands or fathers may hold them or a mother cannot approve surgery for their child uh, because husbands or fathers or male relative have to approve. This is not a legal rule, but they, I was told that this is a custom uh, that puts women in a difficult position. Um, and uh, for instance, for a divorced woman to um, remove her ex-husband's name from her name is a, is a very arduous, very difficult process, whereas men don't face such difficulties. So these are these appear to be minor and practical things, but they're really, really important uh, and shape um, the other uh, aspects of, of women's lives and lives uh, 
in also in relation to their ability to politically participate. So there's all we need to think about these things in a continuum, in a in a wider context, and see the, all these things as a part of a spectrum rather than unimportant line of things because they all form together a holistic situation. Uh, other issue was double standards. Uh, so some section I was told, uh, we were told that creative society believe that uh, women are not as qualified as women, as men in politics. So for instance, one of the interviewees said, political field is perceived as an aggressive and tough place for women who are not seen to have the right skills and relevant experience or quote unquote, what it takes to survive in that place. As a result, <clears throat> scrutiny towards women is harsher and um, they are expected to prove their worth, they are worth the position they have or uh, they are, uh, and these are mainly shaped by a mild bias discourse uh, that uh, with, with double, double standards that force women to work harder to prove themselves as cap capable uh, politicians. Um, and such views, uh, exist in this, what is interesting is that they, these exist despite creative women's extensive experience in socioeconomic life, political life, the high rates of employment, uh, women's um, high levels of education, including tertiary education, their membership in management boards in high positions they hold in the bureaucracy. It's, it's a creative women, uh, it's a group of very affluent women, um, but still there is this idea of, uh, you know, politics is not for women, quite prevalent in, in Kuwait, I was told. Um, and, uh, you know, also important to mention, in addition to their including in, in, taking part in socioeconomic life, um, they have been actively engaged in politics uh, through leading civil activism, carrying out campaigns and etc. in religious organizations and unions, the unions, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so, and this goes, this, in addition to that, there's a um, double standard towards men as well. So. In, in what I what I mean with this is that even though um, male candidates and MPs ability uh, is not necessarily great or um, they did so one of the interviewees said men have been given multiple chances and have proven themselves not worth it yet they get elected again so the same kind of scrutiny is not implemented is not practiced against men uh, whereas women have a different experience. Uh, there's a lot of criticism towards women themselves who were elected in the parliament that they haven't done enough work or they haven't, uh, they are criticized, especially the first four women elected to parliament in 2019 for not having done enough. Um, and this was very much criticized, obviously, by the interviewees. Um, and uh, they said, for instance, the expectation was unrealistic uh, and um, what they could have achieved because, and then they were cast as failures, not everyone believes that obviously, uh, but there is a discourse um, and you know that has developed in, in that context. Um, so and this is mainly you know the MPs who have might who might have achieved less or or even equal amounts have not been criticized or have not been uh, have been uh, applauded. Um, in fact, they had significant achievements. They introduced several bills to improve women's status and rights. They managed to get 11 of these bills passed through the parliament. They prevented some of the proposals by conservative and Islamist MPs. They formed the Parliamentary Committee on Family and Women. And they all did all this despite the lack of support from other male MPs and despite the difficulty in changing existing policies. And the fact that they were only in the parliament for less than two years, actually, it wasn't even a long period. Another issue is sexism, uh, and it was considered as prevalent in Kuwait um, and can be commonly observed in the media and social media. Uh, sexism in the form of misogyny and patriarchy reveals itself in the form of harassment of women through the dissemination of information and perceptions, negative perceptions about uh, women politicians, private lives, personality, family, honor, um, quote unquote, uh, bodies to and, and bodies to delegitimize them. Uh, so they are judged for not fulfilling their primal maternal and family family duties. Um, there are face smearing campaigns in, on Facebook, um, smearing campaigns on Facebook about their honor uh, or, or their family. However, male MPs do not face such misogynistic and sexist attacks. Also, there is a you know belittling women uh, politicians by posting comments such as 
you don't have what it takes, you're not qualified, you don't know how to talk and so on and so on, you are emotional um, and they are body shamed. So this is uh, something prevalent uh, um, as the participant, participants mentioned. The other thing I wanted to talk about is Divanias, as I mentioned, and in relation to that net network, um, uh, the net, the, the you know the women's ability to generate and utilize networks to uh, get into uh, the parliament or join politics. Um, so it's a it's very challenging. I was told to break through the system of Divania to enter politics as a newcomer, and this is not just for women, also young men. Uh, or those uh, young men who ha don't have tribal um, connections. Um, and this very much hinders women's access to public opportunities and networks, especially in districts where tribes and pro-Islamist views are more dominant. And there is also the political money was also mentioned as another factor. Um, so there are efforts to overcome this. So some uh, women have established their own divanias, female divanias exist, and there are mixed divanias that have been established. Also during the elections, uh, women join divanias actually. So that rule, that that kind of cust that custom has changed. Uh, there are also efforts to um, uh, support women who are interested in joining politics in terms of training, carrying on activities. For instance, uh, Mudhavi's list initiated by Alunud Al Sharik and three other women aims to support women running for elected office positions by linking them with volunteers um, and possible potential donors. Uh, in this platform and to assist uh, campaign services. They also try to raise awareness about women's political part leadership and many other organizations are doing that as well. I'm sure Dr. Lubna uh, can mention lots of examples as well. She's uh, also pioneering a lot of uh, important work on this in this area. Um, so uh, networking, as I mentioned, was, was difficult. Um, I'll skip this part. Um, uh, another net, but for so divanias is one way of uh, so challenging a divania, trying to have access to divanias, forming their own divanias has been one of the strategies uh, used by, by women. Another one is social media. So I was told that women use this platform more so, women politicians or candidates use this platform more than men uh, to reach out to wider audiences. Um, and um, but at the same time, um, as one of the interviewees said that social media also has the risk of creating a big bubble uh, that's limited to like-minded people with similar backgrounds that may not necessarily reach to very wide audiences. Um, some of the interviewees also mentioned that um, uh, one of the differences they have compared to male participants, male politicians, was their effort to their effort to work with other women and younger populations, men or women. Uh, so their campaign managers, our teams are usually composed of younger people, which is not necessarily the case with the teams. Um, and Dr. Lumna can correct me. As far as I remember, she uh, told me that uh, one of the reasons for this is that women MPs appear to be more aware of the concerns of the younger generation due to their engagement with different civil society organizations that focus on issues such as education, women's issues and social initiatives. Uh, last uh, quick note on that. So um, uh, there are debates about, you know, are women less corrupt um, or or not, or um, you know, they are kind of this ambivalent relationship between being a man and corrupt, or and vice versa. Um, so interviewees described that most women politicians are outspoken and active women who want to make a change um, and they want to improve the system, make it more transparent, and they challenge corruption and was them more openly than male politicians would do. Um, they have touched on issues such as economic equality, health and education and social issues more so than men politicians have done. It doesn't mean that men politicians haven't talked about these things, but women are more likely to heavily emphasize these issues. Um, and uh, they have challenges structured and you know, tried try to reform the processes, although this has been um, difficult. So in the literature in general, uh, uh, in other contexts, uh, women's political participation can indeed challenge the status quo, uh, but it can also perpetuate it. Uh, so in general, um, inclusion of excluded sections in general, uh, in societies as stakeholders, such as women, such as uh, LGBT communities, such as young people, uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a process of consensus building, is a positive dynamic. So in a way, um, 
and ha this has positive implications on transparency, on, on um, taking power from established authorities and, and democratization. So in general, women's participation in politics is a process like that. And, um, and very uh, many of the participants said that they do, do not perceive an intrinsic connection between being a woman and uh, an aversion to corruption. They said, uh, you know, several female ministers have become loyalists to the government, so on and so forth, and have not necessarily challenged existing structures. Um, but um, there are, they also talked about these existing structural inequalities in the system uh, that forces women to take a different position because um, they haven't been in the system for long enough and they lack, lack connections or um, they might be, that's why they might be perceiving more transparent ways of doing politics because they want to challenge Basta to empower themselves so that um, the uh, inequalities diminish or, or reduce in the processes. So that's why that's a way of increasing their leverage and, and influence uh, to disempower those that benefit from the established system. Obviously, this faces a uh, counter reaction as well. So in terms of impact, and I will finish here, I'm sorry I took too long. Um, the uh, interviews talked about very positive developments, you know, the, imp the women's political participation have made an impact, women's suffrage have made an impact on, on politics in Kuwait. Uh, the, one example is the transformation of Divanias as an institution. Um, so there are continuities in this institution, but the nature of it, or the, the it has changed and proliferated. Um, and one, another impact was talked about how much now male MPs are also talking about women's issues because their voters are also women. Uh, so they cannot talk about, for instance, the issue of housing, housing without including non-married, divorced, widowed women. So thanks to the contribution of female MPs, actually. And um, there is also a push for transparency. For instance, you know, women MPs are more open to be grilled in the parliament, whereas male MPs have not faced that position situation, I was told easily um, and there is also changes in the discourse about women um, so you know the, the not, women's political participation might have been considered as in 20 to 30 years ago by most of the population or, or by the conservatives as something not acceptable but this is changing and islamist parties islamist groups are also have their own female mps they are organizing their work in a way that includes women uh, in that sense there is a change there as well um, and uh, it also was interesting, which I want to end uh, with this note, that women's suffrage, which I think is a very important impact, has actually revealed the underlying gendered inequalities and biases in the Kuwaiti system. And I think this is a very important impact. Women's, uh, as one of, stated by one of the interviewees, uh, I'm reading in her own words, uh, women's voting rights brought out a lot of hateful misogyny to the open and showed how despite women's political participation for 15 years, gender equal inequalities uh, persist. Uh, so that, I'm going to end here. Um, so I would be interested in hearing uh, your thoughts, you know, what, what is the solution? Um, I'll leave it to the creative experts to uh, talk about, you know, what is the solution? Is it the quota or not quota? And I think, um, and I'd, I'd be happy to also uh, make some comments on that issue or any other comments. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Uh, we'll turn to Dr. Lubnana. Thank you, Zainab. You're, you had a lot of insight in that short time. However, I'd like to just briefly uh, add some more to what you said. Uh, one, one, and first, I will go into the historical background. So one of the main, uh, may I would say, uh, challenges is the division of electoral districts. The electoral districts that we have, the five districts, you see that they go not symmetrically, asymmetrically, to include certain areas that are predominantly tribal. And here again, then you come into the other cultural problem of the tribal areas. These uh, electoral districts, again, are uh, some of them are more highly populated. So therefore, any candidate of an urban area that's attached to these other areas will have a disadvantage because she would need many more votes, she or he, to win. 
So the electoral districts division is a major problem. It was done uh, when we first start, they first started. And as you know, the orange movement reduced the 10 to five areas. However, again, it was not done uh, in a way as myself as a demography, we would say that it went symmetrically. Again, these districts, uh, just uh, for your uh, the knowledge of the listeners, has been residentially segregated. Tribes have moved together. They have moved to certain areas. So I can tell you, for example, this electoral district would have this tribe predominantly. That electoral district would have such and such tribe predominantly. So already there is a kind of a, how do you say, hidden monopoly of residents of voters in that area. So the electoral districts is a disadvantage. And to give you an example of why I think it's a disadvantage is in the last election that we had in the second district. And uh, there was uh, one of the women candidates who stayed past midnight uh, amongst the 10 that would be chosen, Ali al-Khalid. Once they finished counting the ballots, which are less in number in the inner districts and started moving to the more uh, tribal districts, she fell out because, again, she had the disadvantage of what we talk of the hidden primaries. So electoral districts is one thing. A second uh, second uh, disadvantage, or I, sh I should say handicap women have, is the presence of invisible political parties. I don't vouch for political parties. As you know, uh, some of the handicaps that Iraq and other places face, when you have a political party, they would not necessarily choose a woman as a candidate. Uh, and there are good examples when you come to North Africa. So this invisible political parties are mainly either Islamists or tribal. The one other urban, uh, or we would say liberal group, which was the Democratic National Democratic uh, movement, unfortunately, when the votes were changed suddenly to one vote, they decided to boycott. And their boycott, again, removed a very progressive group, uh, in my opinion, from voting. And uh, as we know, that being silent is as if you agree with what's going on. And we've tried to uh, change their views, but they have boycotted the last few elections. These are the democratic uh, movement. Then uh, when, you, when you speak about the uh, historical background and you talk about the Islamist movements that uh, uh, surged, or we would say the resurgence in the 1980s. In the 1980s, there were no women's committee. The minute we got political rights, they had women's committees. And these women committees were really there so that they could lobby with the female voters. I wonder, and I often ask them, why weren't they present right from the start? And in one of the elections, when we had, we had more than one vote, there was a candidate from an Islamist group, Aruba Rafai, and, uh, and she's well qualified. She is uh, politically uh, acutely uh, aware, uh, yes, with their views, but however, they did not back her. They backed a male candidate. So even these Islamist group, when if there should be an, a, a, a female candidate, they do not back. And since then, there hasn't been a female candidate from any of the Islamist group, even though they're very active. So you have the Islamist group, you have the invisible parties, you have the electoral districts, and then you have culturally what we call the Diwaniya. The Diwaniya uh, initially started as a place where men could gather to speak and meet so that they would not enter the house and it would be on the on the border of the entrance of the house this is how it was in the in the 50s however it has it grew over time to become what we call the political kitchen or where political decisions are made and, and to say symbolic, symbolically where someone comes and uh, tries to lobby and then they decide to uh, stand by him women do not have an access to that or they do not frequent that. Yes, you say there are some diwaniyas and they are there. And uh, and these diwaniyas, some of them like uh, Ghadir al-Asiri and others have uh, mixed uh, attendance. 
from both sexes, but this you're talking about exceptions, not the rule. Yes, in the urban areas, they, they were more open to women coming and joining, uh, speaking at the Diwaniyas. But when you come to the tribal areas, uh, women uh, would not uh, try even to enter there and, and uh, campaign. There are tribal women who wanted to stand. And uh, we in the last election backed some. And some of them are well known, who have a lot of backing from women. Uh, one of them is Dr. Fatma Thalab, who was, uh, who is the head of the uh, Inventor Society, and yet uh, they decided not to in the last minute. Uh, Dr. Khadija Al Galaf did stand, and she did get, she did not get enough to be in the first ten, but she did persist. And being young and wanting the experience, I marvel at her. But however, like I told you they have what they call the primaries. The primaries is illegal, like you said. However, uh, they're very smart when they want to get what they want. They did what they say is that we uh, congratulate so-and-so for the coming elections. That indirectly is giving a signal that this is our guy. You know, so they, they, it would be a roundabout way and how did they choose it? Very few, uh, some I know, who stood as independents from the tribal areas. And one, one is a colleague a long time ago uh, from our history department. But uh, usually their numbers are high and they believe in loyalty, that if they choose somebody, that's who they should vote for. Women don't necessarily, and women have said, voters, that we don't think they really worry about our rights or worry about our issues. However, some of them are very afraid of being found out to vote for somebody else. Some have ventured, have been bold enough to vote for somebody else. But that is a disadvantage because in these electoral districts, they are uh, more highly populated. While you find some of our areas would have 49,000, would have 78,000. Those areas are over 120,000. You would need more votes to win over there. So again, when it gets counted, you start losing if you're a candidate. You need more funds. And then all over Kuwait, unfortunately, service MPs seem to get a better reception. So other than not having funds, women, uh, not, women are less corrupt in uh, not offering services. Then you have what you call, when you spoke about corruption, one of the corruptions that is there here is you are not allowed to vote other than in your district. And some of these MPs who have the resources will change addresses of some voters so they would go to areas where they could vote for them. Again, that relocation during elections, which uh, can be traced, is another form of corruption. And that, again, is a, dis a disadvantage because women not only do not have the funds, they will not stoop to those levels. I know some of my frankness might get me into trouble, but for the sake of uh, authenticity, I'm going to talk about it. Again, you have uh, what we call sexism or double standards. And this was a great disadvantage uh, in the last election, where, uh, as you know, social media played it, uh, social platforms were uh, the area where people campaigned, people gave their views. And uh, unfortunately, Safal Hashim uh, was quoted as some as being aggressive, has been uh, uh, loud, has been outspoken. And yet there are male candidates who were more outspoken, ridiculously aggressive, and no one said a word about them. And they kept saying, see Safal Hashim, why do you want another woman? They use it as a double standard when it serves their purpose. The women that stood there were women, when you talk about intersectionality in this time, there were women from these areas who campaigned and campaigned very well. Uh, as you know, uh, the elimination of violence against women was uh, was passed not just by uh, just not just by uh, the uh, group of abolish one five three, but many other NGOs. These NGOs also supported these women because they felt that these are the areas where women's issues need to be raised. Again, uh, uh, sexism comes out not just 
on social media, but when they say women are not capable, they tend to have a blindfold when, when the only people that stood to the grilling in parliament were female ministers, and they know that. Male ministers tended to resign or, or uh, give in to them. And yet, and yet they would say the women cannot handle the hard life of uh, political office. And so it's really that they f see women as a competition, not as partners. But uh, and women, yes, women are 51 percent of the voters. But again, you come to the problem that women are uh, highly concentrated in the areas, electoral districts that are tribal. It's changing. It's slow. Uh, we ha we have to change. And social media now, for example, you have Clubhouse, you have other uh, platforms and blogs that women are there. The women who did not win in the last election have not been silent. They have been uh, vocal uh, through social media still because in Kuwait, as you know, you never know when the next elections will come. And uh, youth are playing a very big role males and females, and these groups are, are uh, joint. It's not just women or not just men. They seem to be more concerned about the future of Kuwait, uh, the political future and the social future of Kuwait. And they, some of them are monitoring what's going on within parliament. As you know, Kuwait's parliament is legislative. Uh, unfortunately, when you have a concentration of any group that already has gendered opinions, Legislation takes a long time to pass. When we did pass the uh, uh, the law against violence, remember it was passed the one year when the new elections were coming up. They passed it because they knew they had to get on our good side. It's it's when election nears that they begin to see what women need. Unfortunately, not right through that term. And that is something what we need. One of the, uh, I think, solutions is raising voter awareness. Uh, yes, um, those of us were, who were against quota, because we do not want the quota to be a representative of groups, but quota to be chosen from those women who are capable, regardless of their uh, identity. Uh, but, and we want it to be temporary, or at least some of us want it to be temporary, till women increase in parliament. So we wanted a dual system where there would be the elected and the quota till we, because the, the one vote, as you have said, as we have said, is a big disadvantage. And, where, and unless there's a quota, it's going to be very hard with these uh, invisible parties, with these uh, primaries for women to break. It's not just a glass ceiling. It's like you have to jump this fence to be able to get to them. And uh, uh, last and not least, it's uh, we are hoping that there would be a possibility of changing election law to reverse uh, revert back to what it was and not one vote, because by increasing the vote, we would give women more chance to win. And we think that is necessary. So uh, this, in a nutshell, is what I think uh, that needs to be done. Uh, there's much more, but I want to give time. Uh, one more in, in, uh, in uh, I would say, a remark, a side remark on uh, NGOs. Women are the most active in this third sector of NGOs, and they are really the most driving force when any uh, legislation needs to be changed. And a group of them, uh, I was lucky to be in one of them, was to change the law that you mentioned on women having the guardianship or the power to sign for their children's health uh, surgical procedures and even for themselves, which was not there before, which we call in Arabic, it has been changed. Uh, the family court has also uh, made things easier for women now to change their uh, remove after divorce to get their... Uh, uh, child allowance, etc., and change the name. So there are positive changes happening, but believe me, the driving force behind this are the NGOs, male and female, but largely female, because we think that if women are not on legislative bodies, their issues will not be solved. Thank you. Great, thank you so much. Um, both answered a lot of the questions that I had, especially about um, quotas. And that just a few weeks ago, um, Hamad bin Khalifa University in Qatar did a, a really fascinating event that had a, um, some discussion about 
quotas in the, the upcoming shore council elections there. So it's definitely an issue coming up more and more in the Gulf um, and kind of how to, to level the playing field in a sense. Um, so there are a couple of questions here. I'm going to ask uh, both of these uh, at once to, to both of you. Um, one is, and I think you've you both touched on this, what, what will be more empowering to women, participation in the political system or reform to family law that denies women justice and equality? So what will empower them better? Things like changing um, you know, abolishing the the you know the honor killing law, or or allowing non-national women to pass their nationality to, or national women to allow pass their nationality to their children when they're married to non-national men. I mean, do we focus on on the area of family law or getting into parliament to change that law? I guess potentially. And then the the second um, question is uh, from Amina Al Kamal, who's been working on a study on Syrian political participation out of an intersectional perspective, uh, which made clear that not only gender, but also ability, socioeconomic status and geographic background uh, have as much, have a lot of influence on women's participation and can hinder it. So the question is um, out of an intersectional perspective, how um, can difficulties for women in Kuwait uh, be seen? So we can start with, uh, with those two for now. Would you like me to go ahead first? Oh, that would be great. We can go to, to Zainab and then, yeah. Um, on the first question, it's a very difficult question. Um, and um, from, from an academic perspective, and uh, from, from the perspective of uh, how change happen, uh, like in general, in development uh, field, in the development field or in, in, the, in the issues around rights, I think prioritizing one area over others do not really help, does not really help. I think we just need to, especially when it comes to gender and because of its complexity, uh, the um, how um, the societies are complex and they are all affected by processes in different ways. So not every woman are experiencing stigma or, or um, being prevented to you know, benefit from the rights that they have, even though they might be limited in Kuwait, but some women are not experiencing it in, in that way. So we need to look into this spectrum of different experiences in Kuwait in any context and take a holistic view. So I think both are necessary. So political push for political participation should go hand in hand with a push for improving um, rights as, as, as they are in the legal system, because they are interrelated. They are all part of a whole spectrum. They, are all take, they all take place in a, in a continuum um, and they all benefit each other. So one limitation in one area has an impact on the others and one improvement in one area, vice versa, impacts positively the other areas. Um, the other question about uh, let me read the question again. Sorry, it's so intersectionality. Um, uh, yeah, this is a really important perspective. The thing is that um, it's 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 a it's an it, it, it's it's an innate kind of concept. So all uh, women rights activists kind of do intersectional uh, work in a way because they, you know gender analysis uh, and gender work um, looks into these complex existences and different experiences and how different circumstances affect women differently or men differently. So your geographic location, um, your ethnic background, your religious affiliation, um, your uh, economic status and educational background, all these things intersect with each other to lead to certain and different outcomes. Um, and that's, that happens in society and intersectional approach tries to basically put, a, you know, give, uh, asks us to use a lens uh, to look into these processes in more detail, empirically understand them so that we can actually do the right uh, policies or activities to, to also address these um, this extreme advantages or extreme disadvantages that happen within the society. Uh, so I think there is a lot to be discussed about this. So in the um, uh, so I, I wouldn't be able to say much about this in Kuwait because I haven't really done long enough research to talk to women activists and organizations what kind of work they do on this area. I will, I will, I will leave that to Lubna, she might be able to uh, provide more insights on that. But this is a very important issue and I think one of the things uh, that was mentioned by some of the interviewees, the interviewees is uh, to uh, in, in, in the activities organized by uh, organizations, NGOs, or in, in the way they carry out their work, 
the discussion has to be also intersectional. There should be dialogue between um, women uh, activists, not just uh, you know including um, women from different backgrounds, but also working with um, groups, men or female or unions uh, that work on different aspects, different issues in the society and have dialogue with them so that this holistic view uh, kind of becomes more embedded uh, within their work as well. Uh, and I think that's another kind of imp important thing to discuss. I'd be very interested in hearing how um, the group in Syria, the project for a united Syria is uh, approaching this issue. I, I will stop there. Thank you. Uh, uh, to answer your first question, Courtney, I would say it's like the horse and the carriage. And you don't know which one is more important. I would say the horse. And here the horse, I would talk about political participation. Because unfortunately, uh, even if we should have the, uh, though we have the awareness, and though we know that are pressing social issues, when there aren't enough uh, people in parliament that believe in these issues, they will not pass the law we will find that we will succeed in raising awareness, we will succeed in getting the government uh, to be an ally, and then when the minister wants to put it forth on the parliament, uh, in the parliament discussion, uh, we will not get enough votes. So I think getting enough people in the legislative body who are uh, rational, who, who empathize with uh, gender and social issues, is very, very important because if we do not have them, then we will not have our uh, uh, laws or legislation passed. So when you talk about the uh, you, one thing we have to get clear that the family status code uh, cannot change un, uh, unless, uh, because there are reservations on it, even though there are some, er some uh, GCC countries who have already raised the minimum age of marriage to 18. Uh, in Kuwait, uh, the work I was doing for 10 years with the uh, Supreme Council of Development and Planning with UN Women and UNDP, we conducted a survey on all the areas through the Census Bureau, and we found that over 80%, 82% of men agreed with raising the minimum age of marriage, uh, whilst uh, the, uh, the, the women, there were 97% were for it. And yet, uh, you will not have the parliament uh, present MPs agreeing to that, even though they have often said that the minimum age will not be passed. And so there are other issues even uh, more pressing. Like I told you, the, the, uh, dom uh, the domestic violence uh, uh, law was passed just because the elections were coming and because we pressed and said that we will keep in mind those who don't. And do you know that when the law was put on the floor, there are some that walked out because they did not want to vote against, in case in cases held against them, they left. And when they were asked why they left, they said, well, what do we tell our male voters? So here you come up with the double standard because it could be like we say, your sister, your mother, your daughter, but they tend to have, here when I talk about a horse, you know how they just see what they, uh, you know, that's right in front of them. That is the problem. So we need more women or we need more uh, open-minded people in, leg in legislative bodies. Uh, again, uh, when you spoke about intersectionism, yes, we need to empathize with what they have. Uh, maybe I do not have the problems that, that uh, most of them have, but yet we need to know what is it? What are the hidden or uh, fears that they have about change? What are the needs that they think are uh, a priority. So uh, this intersectionality is very important. And like I told you earlier, the geographical uh, distribution is a problem. The culture within those geographical distribution is another uh, added problem. And uh, really now it's more about getting these women to believe that the power can come from within. They should not wait to be given. And it's something that they should believe that they can do themselves. So it's really how can you motivate them without creating a fear? Great, thank you. We only have a few minutes left, but I'm just gonna give you both um, a couple of questions and then 
like an unfair amount of time um, to, to answer them, just because I think they're, they're good questions. Um, one is what are the, the main goals which female MPs have focused on in Kuwait, if there's kind of one area in which they, they cluster around. And this is kind of related is, um, you know, can the key to getting women into parliament be built around a single issue? Uh, would like uh, abolish 153? Um, and then uh, another question, could, could either of you speak to the, your views on the role of Kuwaiti youth, especially young women in advancing um, women's political participation in Kuwait. And finally, um, how far are NGOs able to operate in Kuwait without government uh, supervision or intervention on uh, women's issues? And my sense is that um, they're, they're pretty free to, to operate and, and there's a, an impressive number of them. So, um, but I'll go ahead and, and leave that to you two uh, to have a few minutes each. I'll start with, start with muting myself. Um, sorry, <laughs> let's start with uh, Lubna this time and then go to Zainab. I'll be quick, Zainab, so I don't take your time. Yes, we do have, uh, alhamdulillah, uh, complete freedom to speak about what we want, as long as it's not about the ruler and it's not about the constitution. We can freely speak about social issues. And this is uh, the, this freedom of uh, speech is a great advantage here. And uh, the NGOs, uh, just some rules by the Social Affairs Ministry to establish one so that they know that it's not religiously motivated, it's socially or civically motivated. Other than that, there are no restrictions. So there have to be sufficient members and why this uh, uh, NGO is being, being established. Other than that, there aren't any restrictions. Uh, your second question was uh, on the issues. I think uh, the, the the candidates came from different walks of life. There were some, there were a great number of lawyers, and the lawyers, uh, the, the, even though there was consensus amongst uh, most on women giving their nationality to the Kuwaiti women married to non Kuwaitis giving their nationality to their children, uh, more uh, and uh, women uh, fighting violence against women. But uh, there were some that, because of the area that they come from, spoke more about the education of the next generation, what's happening with the uh, education system and the demand in labor market. There were those who came uh, from uh, uh, different backgrounds, like actual lawyers or economic. So I think they wanted to show that they had a more uh, wide knowledge of what the needs were. They did not want to all come out talking about the same issue because many of them stood together in one area. So there were those who took up uh, youth and education, there those who took up legislative change, there are those who took up, uh, took up uh, economy. So I think it's not wise to choose one topic, but there were those uh, topics that they all agreed on. Um, thank you, Zainab, we'll move to you. Great, thank you. Um, so about the first question, I think um, uh, Lubna already um, answered that question about the activities they carried on um, in the female MPs. Another aspect that came up in relation to that is the general work ethic of female MPs and um, their also non-elected politicians uh, who are part of the bureaucracy. Um, uh, and how much, uh, how hard, you know, how much harder they work to improve the day-to-day -day running of the situation, to make it more efficient, to make a real change, um, to um, you know, improve improve the existing mechanisms and the work on a day-to-day -day basis as well, which is really important. I think that was another thing that was mentioned. Um, the um, goals of um, so. The NGOs, uh, yeah, I'm not in a place to answer that. I think Luna is in the best position to answer that, and she already did. Um, in terms of the, um, um, what was the other question? About the role of youth, I think. The role of youth. Yeah, that's that's really important. I think that came up a lot in discussions, how much youth has been playing increasingly more role um, in men and women. Uh, who are not only vocal about women's rights, but also vocal about the way the politics are running, the issue of democracy, the issue of corruption. Um, there is a significant political activism going on, run by uh, groups organizing among themselves in the social media platforms. Um, there's an affluent, you know, a very well-educated uh, generation in Kuwait. And uh, the thing is that, and this was mentioned by some of the interviewees, after having 15, 16 years of 
presence of women in politics more informal terms also women's vote women you know voting and joining in elections um have made the new generation and that grew up in that context to to see this as this is the normal this is the normality uh, and and also kind of which generates a different kind of thinking about women women's roles so this long-term generational impact is also happening uh, in Kuwait um, and I was told uh, for instance some of the uh, you know the, the girls are like re reading scholars or authors who are critical of of the way things are and then uh, and using these to talk about social issues and, and raising their voices so I think this is uh, really important. I think the, one of the authors that they mentioned was Bufaina Al-Issa. I haven't read her work, but she seems to be uh, someone who challenges the censorship decision-making processes and, and boundaries, and, and young generations engaging with these types of writings, intellectual um, work that's been going on. I don't know if I answered all your questions, Courtney. Were there any other things that I missed out? Courtney, I have a question. Was your, was your question on candidates or MPs? In terms of the the issues they're covering, or yes, I think it was kind of both. Um, yeah, in terms of they should whether they should focus on one topic or not. because as MPs, it would be a different issues that they divided themselves, made sure that one of them would be in the women's committee, one of them would be in the education committee, one of them in the economic according to the area of specialization. However, when the vote is put, they were all agreed as a block to vote for these issues, whichever their colleague would put forth. Okay, thank you. Yeah, there's, um, this is fantastic. There's so many issues, not just with kind of the institutions and the structures, but also you know, the, the social issues beyond that. So we've covered quite a lot and I thank you both um, for fantastic discussion um, and thank the audience for their questions. And uh, hopefully we will um, we'll see you both again soon. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you and good luck Zainab. Thank you. Thank you so much for organizing. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.